Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. So you recently got back from Taos, New Mexico. What were you up to down there, Chris? I was invited to visit my friend Phil Poirier. Uh, he runs Bonnie Dune Engineering. If you're in the jewelry industry at all and uh, you check out, uh, let's say, the Rio Grande catalog or their, their website, You'll see all the Bonnie Dune products that are out there, and and they are they're primarily for hydraulic forming, so hydraulic presses and the tooling and add in add-ons for using a hydraulic press. Phil and I met a few years ago at uh, the Ornamental Turners International at one of their symposiums, and uh, he and I were were both speaking at the Santa Fe Symposium earlier this year. So we've become good friends over that uh, the last couple of years. He invited me down to visit and uh, stay with uh, him and his wife for a few days, uh, hang out in the shop and and play around with some some of the tools that he has that I don't have access to, and also shoot some video. If you go on to Phil's Instagram feed, you can see a, a short video that we we recorded of me doing some engine turning on a pen cap as well as uh, I ended up doing some engine turning on a few other things, although I'm not sure if they made it into that video. Uh, he's giving a talk next year at the Santa Fe Symposium on engine turning. Now, this is a continuation of a series of talks he's been giving on um, on engine turning at the symposium. So this is the the next one, and I believe this one is uh, is focused on straight-line engine work, which is something that I'm very familiar with and have done a lot of. So it was nice to uh, to spend a few days down there and see what he's doing. It's always nice to see how other people work in their shop and also just to be able to sit down in a relaxed environment to talk about the things that you're doing. He obviously knows a lot more about deep drawing and hydraulic forming than I do. He's been doing it for 30 years or something like that. And I'm still a relative newbie at, at doing deep drawing. So it was nice to be able to bounce ideas off of him and and get some ideas on how to fix problems that I've been having with uh, with my processes. Uh, so that was uh, that was rather nice. Nice. So what sort of tools does Phil have that you you don't normally have access to, or what did you play with while you were down there? Oh well, he so he has an impressive collection of engine turning and ornamental turning uh, machines engines. Uh, so he has a. Um, a plant, a 14-inch plant straight-line engine like the one that I have. He also has a plant rose engine. Uh, he has a ornamental lathe built by Fred Armbruster uh, that's uh, that's very nice, as well as a Leanhard rose engine that is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, I would kill to have uh, one of those those uh, rose engines in my shop. They're they're absolutely stunning. And he's got a few others. Uh, some of the smaller ones, like the Field Rose engine, which is uh, which is what I have. Uh, so being able to play with some of his engine turning equipment and his ornamental turning uh, engines was uh, was very nice. And also seeing some of the add-ons that he has for it and the and the setups and stuff. So that was nice. On the manufacturing side of things, they have uh, they have a few nice machines, a couple of nice CNC lathes and a nice CNC uh, vertical machining center. Uh, that are nice to uh, to be able to work in and make tooling and stuff from. Uh, so I had a chance to uh, hang out with him and and his uh, assistant Brooke, uh, who does all the work in the shop as well. 
so the two of them were were great. They were very welcoming, and uh, and we had a really good couple of days uh, doing that. Uh, this was my first time visiting Taos, New Mexico, and it's uh, I guess around two and a half hours north of Albuquerque, uh, and it's very close to the New Mexico Colorado border. It's up in the mountains. It's uh, a ski resort town in the winter. Uh, so in this case, I flew into Denver and rented a car and drove down, I guess it's around four hours down to uh, to Taos. Fortunately, flying into Albuquerque from Ottawa is difficult. There, there aren't a lot of great flights that go in there. So it was faster for me to fly to Denver and then and then drive down. One thing I didn't realize about Taos is just how many incredible artists there are in the area and, and living there. It's it's a relatively small town. I want to say it's a few hundred thousand people, maybe two hundred and fifty thousand people, three hundred thousand people. Uh, but there's some incredible artists there, uh, and of course, Phil, having lived there for a long time, he's he's good friends with a number of these people. We uh, we went around and did a few shop visits while I was there. Peter Gilroy is a jeweler down there. He does some some impressive work and has worked with Phil before in the past. They they spoke last year together. Their talk on um, die forming in a hydraulic press and uh, peter does some great work in jewelry that's inspired by his love of rock climbing and there's some gorgeous rock climbing in that area if you're ever you're ever interested in rock climbing go down to taos there's some stunning scenery and incredible places to climb Uh, so we had a chance to spend a morning with uh, with peter and see some of the stuff that he's working on Uh, so that was fun i've been a fan of his work for a long time so it was nice to be able to see his shop and chat with him about what he's doing we also had a chance to visit michael walker if you're in the knife world or if you've been interested in the knife world then mike walker's name is one that you'll recognize he has been at the top of i guess the collectible knife market for 35 years at this point and uh he is uh, he's a remarkable maker he has invented a number of incredible mechanisms for knives everything from uh, how to lock knife blades open as well as some impressive techniques for making dual metal blades that are uh, mechanically connected together in sort of a dovetail fashion mike has done some amazing work over the years it was a true pleasure to be able to to chat with him for a few hours and and see what he's doing in his shop and uh, be able to talk to him about some of the techniques that he's um that he's worked on and some of the the unique things that he's created and and how he's created them so yeah, that was um that was nice julie lake who's another jeweler in the the area she stopped by while we were at mike's shop actually and and chatted with her for for a few minutes and uh, she's doing some fun things with stainless steel and welding and creating jewelry that has uh, a volume to it a lot of it's sort of open cage work type type jewelry and uh, a lot of it's a lot of it's beautiful. Her welding work is amazing. Uh, out of the blue, one one night, uh, Phil said, "Hey, do you want to go flying tomorrow morning?" And I said, "Flying? Yeah, sure. I'm always up for going flying. I I've loved flying since I was a kid. Absolutely, I was more than happy to go flying. And it turns out that a friend of his in town, uh, Chris Dalbridden, Bredin. Sorry, Chris, I'm mangling your name." He is an incredible photographer, landscape photographer, and he shoots from his ultralight. He took me up on Friday morning. We got up to fly around Taos for about 45 minutes. He has a, a great gimbal set up in front of his ultralight, so he can set up his still camera, his video camera, to be able to do amazing photography 
uh, of course, the the beauty of being in an ultralight is that you don't have any plane around you, really. So you have a great view of the world, such an incredible way of of seeing the landscape and and what's going on around you. And and for any of you who are, who are motorcyclists, this is sort of the equivalent of being a motorcyclist in the air. You know, you get that feeling of of being there. Um, you know, with a motorcycle, if you're if you're riding around a country in a motorcycle, you really get a sense of of temperature changes and smells and you know changes in humidity and everything like that because you're you're out there in the elements and this is the same kind of thing. It's uh, it's very different than being even in a small plane like a Cessna uh, because you are out there in the you know in the sky and and uh, you know there's nothing around you just just a small bit of plane. That was a a lot of fun. And uh, we'll have a link to Chris's Instagram feed in the show notes. And I suggest everybody check out his Instagram feed. It is absolutely stunning, the shots that he gets. Yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. That was uh, the most fun I've had uh, I've had in a long time and just totally out of the blue and random. Like it was entirely unplanned on my part. And uh, and of course, I'm sitting there thinking afterwards, like, hmm, how do I get myself one of these ultralights? Because uh, <laughs> it would be... So much fun to fly one of those. No, and the landscape there looks incredible. Similar to I'd say the Grand Canyon. Yeah, there's some there's some gorgeous landscape there. You're up in the mountains, so Taos is around I think it's around seventy five hundred feet, uh maybe seven thousand feet. It's uh so you're up in the mountains, but it's a, a gorgeous plain. Uh, it used to be part of a huge volcano range, if I understand correctly from the uh, from what Chris was saying. And so that whole area was basically covered in in very rich earth after this this volcanic eruption about a million years ago. So there's a beautiful lush scenery that's around there. You know, there's a lot more agriculture there and a, and and beautiful beautiful vegetation that's there more more than I would have expected. When you think about New Mexico, you think about a desert, but uh, this is gorgeous uh, area. Plus, it has you know you're up in the mountains, so there's um, there's stunning views from that. Uh, there's a gorge that we flew through, uh, through the Rio Grande Gorge, and uh, we were able to to sort of see some of that. And that uh, overall, it was uh, it was great. So definitely check out uh, Chris's feed, see what what kind of scenery is out there. But uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a true pleasure to be able to do that. I was it was entirely unexpected and, and a lot of fun. Having been exposed to some new tools and add-ons for engine turning, are there any items you want to replicate for yourself in your own show? Yeah, there are. Uh, there's a few things that uh, that I want to build. Uh, some of them are things that I are, just aren't practical for me to build, or or I, I don't really need. Uh, they'd be fun to have, but I don't I don't really need like uh, this ornamental lathe that he that Phil has the uh, his arm Brewster ornamental lathe is uh, it's an impressive machine. It's a it's a beautiful engine lathe. It is absolutely gorgeous, but it's not really that useful for the kind of work that I do. Having spoken with with Phil and bounced around some ideas, I, I've been thinking about building my own straight line engine, and I think that I may end up doing that. There are a few things that bother me about the antique engines that are out there, and uh, they weren't really designed for doing work at the detail level that watch work, for instance, demands. There are a few things that I'd I'd like to build into my own engine certainly some some modern conveniences things like putting a digital readout 
uh, DRO onto the engine so that I can easily find where I am and be able to, uh, uh, you know, see digitally what's going on with the, the offsets on the machine and things like that. So there's, uh, I, I think at, at some point I'm going to, I'm going to have to build my own straight line engine. And of course, being Bonnie Dune, being the, the guys who create a lot of this great stuff for doing, uh, for doing hydraulic forming, uh, I'm definitely going to be looking at getting into a better hydraulic press than the one that I've got as well as some new tooling that I don't, uh, I don't currently have. So that'll be, that's, that's high on my list of things to do is, is get into some better hydraulic tooling than, than what I'm currently using. So did Phil help you out with the, the process you currently or been working on for deep drying your, your pens, or do you just experiment with different things while you're there? Uh, no, we certainly talked about the problems I've been having. For people who aren't aren't familiar with what's going on, the caps for my new line of pens is a deep drawn cap, and the way you you do that is you start with a disc of silver in this case, so it's around two and a half inches in diameter. Using a series of punches and dies, you force the sheet through, uh, you know, through a die, and it turns it into a cup. And then you use a successively smaller dies to force it into uh, into a long cylinder. And at some point in my case, I then form it into a shape curve because it's it's not a straight cylinder that I'm using for the cap. It's a it, it has a bit of a curve to it. And I was having some difficulties with the metal buckling in weird ways that I that I didn't want and just unreliability in general. And so Phil was able to to help me work through some of the problems. And it turns out that one of my biggest issues is the thickness of silver that I'm using was too thin. There are a lot of interesting interactions that are going on with the metal. Uh, the metal is compressing in some places and and expanding in, in other places and uh, and stretching. And that interaction of metals, you know, the interaction of how the metal is doing that tends to cause weird things to happen when you've got really thin metal. So I'm going to go back and use some thicker material for the caps, and uh, and that should solve a lot of the problems that I was having. The end of the trip, I drove back up through Colorado Springs and into Denver, and I had a few hours to kill on my way home. And fortunately, a, a, f- a good friend of mine, Rich Littlestone, is in Denver, and I think I've spoken about Richard before on the show. He's another pen maker. He does guilloche work as well. And uh, we've known each other for years through the various shows that we've done as well as uh, through the OTI. And even though I've been through Denver a number of times since I've known him, we our schedules never seem to work out and, and match up. So fortunately, this time I uh, I had I had a chance to visit his uh, visit his house and his shop and see the things that he's working on so he's he does some fascinating work uh if you if you haven't seen rich's work go and go and check it out it 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 was nice to be able to see his stuff in person and in terms of his workshop and and what he's doing and uh, he's doing some great stuff with uh dysync edm to be able to cut uh intricate shapes and pockets into the sides of his pens and then inlay mother of pearl into that it was it was nice to uh to be able to to spend a few hours with rich and uh and be able to catch up and and see what he's doing in the shop. And again, he's he's got some great engine turning equipment, some great ornamental 
turning equipment. He just had two new Goodell brocading engines delivered to his uh, to his shop, and so he was slowly starting to go through those. and And uh, while he didn't have them up and running yet, they were great machines to look at. So, does he do the DiSync EDM right there in the shop? Yeah, he does. Yeah, he has his uh, his Synchro EDM right there in the shop, and and he does that. And I should mention that's that's something else that uh, that Mike Walker does a lot of. He he does a lot of work with Wire EDM and and DiSync EDM. I'm insanely jealous of these guys having access to EDM technology in the shop because I, my there's so many things that I would love to do with both Wire EDM and DiSync EDM. So they're fascinating technologies that you can do some some things some really cool things with it. You just can't do any other way. Yeah, it would be it would be great to play around with that stuff and be able to experiment with it, but. Uh, have you messed around with the EDM equipment at uh, the university nearby? I've had a few things cut on EDM. Uh, my my good friend uh, Paul Burberry, he's assisted me a few times with with EDM stuff. I, I need to bribe him into doing some more EDM work for me because uh, it's again doing, especially when you're when you're cutting things like pattern bars for a straight line engine. Uh, really the only way to do it these days is on wire edm and and the finish that you get out of it is great the accuracy that you get out of it is is just stunning and so yeah there's there's some there's some amazing things that you can do with edm or that's something i would love to experiment more with but it's it's one of those things that it certainly is especially with the type of stuff that i do where it's very non-conventional work it would be nice to actually have access to one of these machines to be able to use on a regular basis so that i could you know i could experiment and see what works and what doesn't work that's one of the the comments mike made when i was chatting with him is he he had a a couple of job shops in the area who were doing his his edm work for him his wire edm work in particular and they just weren't able to to hold the tolerances that he wanted and and you know the back and forth and everything it was taking a long time to prototype stuff so uh, he ended up getting his own wire edm machine and and was able to uh was able to start doing that work himself. It's nice to be able to do things on your own. I've, you know, as I've sort of mentioned through some of the the previous episodes, I do a lot of my own casting. I do my own engraving, and one of the one of the advantages of having these tools available and being able to do this stuff in your own shop is that you can work at your own pace. You can prototype quickly. Uh, you can fail quickly, and that's probably one of the most important things. John Saunders on of uh, NYC CNC and. He talks about failing quickly when he's doing something. And, and by that, he means try something. And if it doesn't work, don't spend a huge amount of time on it, but keep working on it, you know, then work on the next the next thing, the next way of doing it. And if you can prototype this stuff in your own shop and, and do this work yourself, then you can very quickly iterate and, and find what does work. Uh, so in my case, because I have access to you know, CNC mill for cutting waxes or a 3D printer for, for printing waxes, as well as all my own casting stuff, I can come up with an idea at 11 o'clock at night on a Friday, model it in Rhino, print it out overnight or mill it out overnight. And by the end of Saturday, I have a cast piece in my hand and I can then see it in, you know, in the flesh and, and be able to uh, to work on it from there. There are huge advantages to having access to these tools yourself and and in your own space. Yeah, I prefer to think of it more as getting over your failures quickly, moving on to your successes. Yeah, yeah that's a great way of putting it. And and the faster you can fail, 
the faster you can work on the next version of it and be able to get something that does work. And so again, with deep drawing, I could I could send out deep drawing work to other people, but this allows me to, to make, you know, design changes and and um, and that kind of thing quickly as well. So that's why I, I want to do it myself. While you were preparing to head out from Taos back to Denver, I took receipt of the iPhone 10. I know you've received yours now as well. What do you what do you think of it? Yeah, you teased me with your iPhone 10 and sent me some emoji while I was there. I know we originally both had the same delivery date, but you got yours a week ahead of time, uh, a week ahead of me, I should say. Yeah, so far, I guess I've had this for two weeks now, and I'm I'm a huge fan of this phone. I had a, an iPhone 7 Plus before. I have to say up front, Face ID is amazing, and I love it. I spend a lot of time in the shop wearing nitrile gloves to protect my hands. And so Touch ID was a thing that either it couldn't work at all because I had nitrile gloves on, or the other problem is that my hands are so chewed up from being in the shop and, and working in the shop that oftentimes my fingerprints just wouldn't register properly with, uh, with Touch ID. Face ID is far more reliable for me. It's much faster. And that alone for me is worth the price of admission. What about you? How do you how do you feel about the phone now that you've had it for a couple of weeks? Definitely agree with you with, with Face ID. Well, I guess let's let's get the obvious thing out of the way. The design is top notch. Uh, but yeah, I'm a big fan of of Face ID. It has fallen on its face a few times for me, but I mean, Touch ID didn't work 100% of the time either. The accuracy of Face ID is something that a lot of people have, have been talking about. And, and this was the same thing that everybody talked about when Touch ID came out, was how accurate is it and how good is it. And honestly, this is much better than the first version of Touch ID. And I think for me in particular, it's much better than the second generation of Touch ID as well. And so while it does fail, for me, it's far more consistent and, uh, than, than Touch ID was. Yeah, and the, the wireless charging has been awesome too. It's really convenient to just be able to drop it on its pad at the end of the day and at work just being able to i have a another little pad that i, I ordered and, and keep in my bench and just drop it on there if it, if it needs a boost battery life's been phenomenal it hasn't really needed a boost except one day where i had misplaced it on the charger at night and i was down at 60 percent starting my day i mean i could probably go for two days uh, without running out of battery yeah i i have to agree with that the 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 battery life on it has been incredible i've now I went. I've come from a seven plus that was only a year old, so my battery was still in good condition, and it was a large battery, so I could easily get a day and a half, two days of battery out of my my seven plus. And I was a little concerned going down to a smaller sized phone with a smaller sized battery, if I was going to be able to do the same thing. And I can I can definitely get get two days out of this. And uh, in my case, I'm I'm happy because the center console on my car has a Qi wireless charger in it. And so now, a year after getting this car, I can finally use the wireless charger that's in it. So it's it's nice when I'm driving, you know, into the city or whatever. I can get it's not fast, and you know, it's not going to completely fill my phone, but I can at least get sort of five to ten percent in my phone when I'm uh, when I'm in the car and driving into town. Now, do you have wireless CarPlay as well? I do. I've I've had CarPlay in the wireless CarPlay in the in the car from day one. Uh, you know, the Seven Plus was able to do that as well. So. The advantage of being able to just throw it in the in the center console, start charging it, it just starts playing whatever it was, whatever the last thing was that I was playing on my phone. So whether it's a podcast or an audiobook or whatever it was, I don't have to do anything. I just basically start driving and, and away I go and I don't have to plug my, my phone in at all, which is so liberating. 
Hmm. So what Qi chargers are you using around the house? Uh, I have the Anchor one. I don't remember exactly what, which model is. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes. But I've been very happy with this Anchor one. It was relatively inexpensive. Uh, one of the nice things about this this Anchor charger is the it has some blue LEDs on it, which sort of glow a couple of times when it starts charging, and then they shut off. So you don't have to worry about there being a, an LED on while it's charging all the time, but it gives you that visual indication that you've actually started charging the phone. Overall, I've been I've been impressed with that. The speed of the wireless charging doesn't bother me because, as you say, I'm you know we're we're charging it at night or or during the day or whatever, so it's it's not too uh, not too big a deal. Now, what are your thoughts so far on the screen uh, on on this like the visually on the screen? We'll, we'll talk about the development side of it in a bit, but what do, what do you think so far of the uh, of the screen? Visuals of the the OLED display are fantastic. Uh, really impressed with the the color accuracy and and just how crystal clear everything looks on the display. Uh, it really is like just painted up on the glass. Uh, as far as the the size of the screen itself, I mean, I'm coming from the opposite side of the spectrum as you. I've I've owned a number of the the larger devices for development purposes, but for my personal everyday carry, I've stuck with the. 5S form factor. No, just because that's my favorite uh, of all the the iPhone designs to date. Uh, so that's been my everyday carry for a good number of years. So it's it's been quite the the shift to go to a bigger screen. That is essentially having the the plus size screen in a normal size phone. So it's it's been a a stretch to say the least. Uh, I've turned on the the one handed keyboard. Just gotta find that a lot more convenient because I'm often using the keyboard one handed, so that nudges all the keys over to one side of the screen, and that can be accessed just by long pressing on the internationalization keyboard shortcut there at the bottom of the screen. Uh, reaching up at the top of the screen's been been a challenge, so I've got reachability turned on as well, and then I've got a, a few odd gestures where I will wrap my fingers around to the edge of the other side of the screen. To, to try and tap on touch targets. So I, for me, it's a touch too big. I would love the edge-to-edge screen in a, a slightly smaller device. And actually, I was gathering up some old iOS devices to, to prep to sell the other day, and I picked up an iPod Touch. And that, to me, just the, the feel of it in the hand actually feels more futuristic than the, the iPhone X to me. And that's a, a product that's got to be four, four or five years old as far as the first gen of that iPod touch goes. It's just so slim and small. So if, if that had an edge to edge screen uh, and I had the choice between a device of that size and a device the size of the iPhone 10, no question, I would, I would go for the smaller device size. Screen real estate's nice for reading things, but I tend to actually use voiceover quite a bit. I use the audio side of the device significantly more just because my hands are often occupied doing other things. I'll just experiment with that a little bit. Uh, I, I've never used the voiceover stuff really. I know you showed me once or twice the um, setting it up and using it, but I, I've never really used the voiceover, uh, and it, it sounds like something that might be worth uh, experimenting with. Yeah, and I had a wireless earbud long before AirPods came out, and the the earbuds I use are, are dirt cheap, like three dollars and seventy five cents for the last one that I picked up, and that was including shipping. Uh, so like I, it's like little chiclets. I could if I happen to drop one or lose one. Doesn't really matter. I haven't lost one to date, but I've just got a handful of earbuds. So I've, I've been using those for for years, and it's, it's fantastic. Uh, I don't even have to pull my phone out of my pocket to to spin up where I last left off on on a podcast or listening to music. I just pull an earbud out of my pocket, turn it on, it pairs automatically. 
press it again and it starts resuming play from where I last left off. Uh, but the, yeah, the HDR on the screen is is amazing. Watching the few videos that I, I watched, uh, my wife and I have been watching uh, Planet Earth 2 recently and I've watched a few clips just myself on the phone, just going back and looking at, at things there. And it's just been, yeah, it's a gorgeous screen. Yeah, it's funny because I, I guess I didn't, I haven't noticed as much of a jump in screen technology as, as you did because I'm coming from a 7 Plus where things like the um, the screen is much closer to the glass on a 7 Plus than it was in the 5S. So the things like that, you know, sort of that painted look, I, I experienced that several generations ago. So I wasn't, that wasn't really as big a jump for me. I find the clarity on the pixels better than the Plus devices that I, I have. That's just to my eye. Yeah, the dot size is a little bit better and it's a it's a bit a bit of a finer dot size and then the native resolution it doesn't do this weird scaling thing that the 7 plus does. Uh so you're right from that point of view it is it is slightly better. The the reachability isn't a problem for me. I can comfortably reach the top corner, the top right corner to get to control center. You know, I can comfortably reach across the screen and and type one-handed if I need to. Uh, but I tend to type with two thumbs a lot, and I find the keyboard is just a little bit too small for me. I find the touch targets are just a little bit too small, even though it is a bit wider. It is not quite as wide as the Plus phone is, and so I find that that little comp- little bit of compression is is a bit awkward. But it's not as it's not as small, or it's it it isn't as narrow as the sort of the standard seven or eight or whatever. Uh, so it's a bit easier to type on than a than an, a seven a normal size seven would have been, uh, but it's still just a little bit smaller than I'm comfortable with. Um, so the the screen size it's funny because I'm 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 looking forward to next year when they're probably you know the rumors are they're going to bring out a plus size version of this phone, and I will probably get that uh, just because I I do like having the extra real estate when I'm typing. Uh, I dislike the physical size of it and how much space it takes up in my pocket. I'll, I'm the first to admit that it's miserable to have in your pocket, but I find that that having that extra real estate when I'm typing is really nice. Hmm. Yeah, the pocketability has been a, an adjustment for me as well. I definitely notice it in my pocket. So this is the again the opposite side of the spectrum from you. I notice it more in my pocket now, whereas you probably notice it much less. Or you weren't even carrying your your plus in your front pockets where you throw it in your back pocket. That's just it. I I was carrying my my plus in my back pocket most of the time because putting it in my front pocket, I couldn't sit down with it in my front pocket. It was just too large. And so I would put it in my back pocket. And then when I would sit down, I would take it out. Whereas with this, I can put it in my front pocket and sit down. And it's a little bit awkward, but it's it's doable. Whereas with the plus, you just can't do that. You know, what I may do is is start experimenting more with using dictation for typing and see if that helps with, um, you know, certain circumstances when I'm typing instead of using the keyboard. And uh, I know I know some people who've done that because if I can avoid the extra physical size of the plus and the associated increase in cost as well, then that would be good. I guess it's a lot easier for you to to do dictation because you're you're primarily by yourself around the shop, so it's not as not as awkward. Yeah, it's it's it doesn't look as weird when when I'm standing there talking to myself as it does when when you are if you've got other people around in the uh, in the shop with you. So that that helps a lot. But of course, it's and, and I'm used to it now with having airplay in the car. Uh, I do dictate message replies and whatnot in the car, 
So that that helps, you know, I've I've gotten used to that back and forth. It's a bit awkward at first, but I've gotten used to that back and forth with Siri and and dictating. So the the dictation is pretty good. I'm I've been happy with the results of it so far. Uh, so it may be worthwhile doing that more in the uh, in the shop. Now, the one thing I will say about the the screen that I have noticed and and anyone who hasn't sort of played around with an iPhone 10 yet, you you might not realize this, but anything that has a dark theme that is not a black background looks so outdated at this point anything that isn't pure black it jumps out at you uh so for instance with uh, something like tweetbot where they had a uh, a a dark background or a dark uh, a dark mode that wasn't black it was you know you'd look at this thing and it would just look horrible in you know on the iPhone 10 and and since then uh, tweetbot they've released a a, a version that has the normal day, you know, sort of light mode, a dark mode, and then a black mode. So if you're on an iPhone 10, you can put it into black mode, and that makes a big difference. So if you're an iOS developer and and you've got a dark theme on your on your iOS app, you need to put a black background version on there because it it those dark mode versions just look horrible on the iPhone 10. Yeah, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say say horrible. It's just they they jump out at you more whereas when you have a fully black blacked out theme it just melts into the device the way that a a slightly gray does not and there's a stark contrast in that yeah and that's why that's why i say that it i think it looks horrible because it does have that gray that jumps out at you and it and it just all of a sudden you're you're very conscious of the fact that this is a screen that has edges and if you've got a black background you're you know the screen doesn't have an edge to it mm-hmm. it just you're you're not displaying anything on that part of the screen as far as you're concerned so i i my brain had a has has a difficult time with the with the dark mode themes that that aren't black and um whereas the ones that are black i find that they definitely work better yeah the gray themes just sort of land in a an uncanny valley of the fusion of hardware and software whereas black is just boom they're the two are fused that's right yeah now this this transition is not as bad looking as the transition to Retina was, for instance. Like the, when you you know that jump to the iPhone four when people hadn't updated their apps for Retina screens yet, that was horrible. That was easily the worst of these jumps that that's been made. Uh, and even the jump up to the plus sized phones a few years ago, that wasn't great, but it wasn't you know wasn't too horrible. So hopefully people will uh, will update their apps and. Same thing with with dealing with the the bar at the top. App developers, of course, need to modify it a little bit for that. But it's it's not as bad when when you see a a non optimized app on an iPhone 10 than than let's say with the uh, the non Retina apps. Yeah, I'd say the transition's more akin to the 4s to 5 transition where things just end up letterboxed. That's right. I noticed that th- there was a Twix update recently to uh, support the iPhone 10. Uh, so how how did you find as a developer? How did you find the the changeover and the uh, the migration to the iPhone ten? Uh, I would say it's relatively straightforward. The only reason that I didn't get either of them day one is because I wanted to physically test them on the device first uh, to make sure the usability was was good. So I waited until I actually sure. had a, the device in my hand and then did actually make a number of tweaks based on actually using them on the device itself rather than just in the simulator. Kello was a far more straightforward update. 
Uh, Twixt took a, a little bit longer, just some some strange ed case, edge cases to deal with there in terms of things that I was doing with table views and, and scroll views and whatnot. Uh, but yeah, it, it was, I would say, a pretty painless transition. There, there was a f- couple of things I ended up needing to do in code, but otherwise a lot of it could just be done from the interface builder side of things, just literally by ticking a, a checkbox and, and changing a few layout constraints. Uh, but yeah, it was, a, I would say, a smooth transition. And I've been playing around with, you know, new sensors and camera capabilities and, and whatnot. And it's been, it's been fun to, to be able to do that. Oh, good. Yeah, some of the some of the new camera sensors that are in the phone, the depth sensors that are there, the the new uh, the new cameras and themselves are far more capable than uh, than some of the older phones. So I'm sure there'll be some some excellent tools for you to use in uh, in your apps. Yeah, I'd say that the camera is what I like most uh, about the the iPhone 10. The camera and the wireless charging those would be my my top two two things that I, I most most enjoy about this particular upgrade. I tend to use my phone in the shop for doing still photos of the work I'm doing, but also for video work. I decided to play around with some gallium yesterday, and so I had some some liquid gallium rolling around in my hand, and I shot that at 4K60, which is a new frame rate available on the iPhone X. And unfortunately, the, the Instagram video is heavily compressed, and, and it doesn't look great. But the original... 4k 60 footage on my phone just looks crystal clear it is absolutely stunning so i'm i'm really looking forward to experimenting some more with uh with the video that's on there Uh, i'm not sure how much of a difference i'll notice with the camera the still cameras on on my phone compared to my 7 plus Uh, i know there there certainly is an improvement with them and especially in the telephoto lens there's a there's definitely a big uh, a big improvement in low light capability and having the optical image stabilization on the telephoto lens as well so i'm sure i'll notice it there uh, but i just haven't had a chance to play with it that much for me at this point the uh, the biggest change is, has definitely been the face id that that's uh that i would buy this phone every day of the week just for face id uh alone even if it had no other updates to it that would be worth it for me yeah i want it on my laptop absolutely i want it on everything now my my ipad is my probably my primary computer you know, outside of my phone. Obviously, my phone is with me all the time, so I'm, I'm going in and out of it all the time. But I would love it on my on my iPad, and I would love it on my MacBook. Yeah, the interesting thing with the iPad is they'll have to solve the the landscape face ID for sure, because you can a lot of people use the iPad in either orientation. Whereas, sure, it's more more common to hold the iPhone in in portrait, and face ID isn't presently supported in landscape on the iPhone. You're right. That that is going to be something they'll have to deal with, but I I don't think they'll have too much of a problem with it. I think that's something they can they can sort out pretty easily. I am looking forward to it. I I was thinking about skipping the next generation of the iPad Pro, but I have a feeling if they bring out Face ID in the next iPad Pro, I may end up buying another iPad. Yeah, but I find the the bouquet feature for for portrait mode still falls on its face from time to time. But the nice thing about the API side of things on that. Is that I've noticed Photoshop, I can now mess around with depth maps in, which I haven't done to too much of a degree. So I can actually go in and fix that in post if there's things like hair that's been, been taken out. And then on the phone itself, there's a handy app, Focos, that you can go in and, and play around with the depth maps and, and modify them there. Hmm. I'll, I'll have to uh, 
I'll have to check out that that ability on uh, on Photoshop. I didn't realize that you could actually get access to the to the depth mapping because that that would certainly be handy for for fixing some of these problems. And, and while I agree the the portrait mode tends to fall down a little bit, I think for the most part it's been it's been pretty good. And frankly, most of the time I don't find that I need it. Uh, you know, they're with the speed of the of those lenses now. As long as there's some reasonable separation between the, you know, the the subject and their background, you still get some some pretty gorgeous uh, bouquet out of it, anyways. Hmm. In particular, if you use that the telephoto lens. Yes, exactly. Yeah, if you use the telephoto lens, you get some uh, you get a great view out of that, and it's uh, it ends up working out pretty well. So, yeah, overall, um, over the little bit that I've played with the the camera, I've been happy with it, and it's it's certainly been a been a pleasant uh, a pleasant improvement. And I should say the the few times that I've used portrait mode, I appreciate the fact that the iPhone renders what you're going to be capturing in, in real time. Whereas Google's latest Pixel phones, it's all post processed when they do their their booking, which is more or less the equivalent. The other thing I should say about the screen is that I've been really impressed by the responsiveness of the interactive animations. So my hats off to Apple's tight integration between the hardware and the firmware and the software teams for pulling that off. It really needs to be tight for them to have eliminated the home button the way that they have. I know that a few people have talked about their frustration with the actions for using the the phone without a home button. And honestly, it took me around 45 seconds to get used to it. It it is so natural. I've had no problems with moving back and forth between, you know, applications in the home screen, being able to do the, um, the new... Uh, application switcher, either the carousel or just the the swipe to 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 uh, move to a new app. I've had no problems with any of that, and it was so natural for me to do that. I I didn't have any issues with it. I, I'm looking forward to the time when that little white bar at the bottom that's an indicator of where the you know sort of the interaction field is uh, either dims or disappears. I understand that for first generation, they sort of need to put that in there you know, to sort of indicate what's going on and, and where people need to go for it. But uh, eventually they'll they'll be able to take that out because people, everybody will just understand what, what's going on. And I'm looking forward to that because I do find that a bit distracting sometimes having that little white bar down there. I was very tempted to uh, to flip the switch to hide it in, in both my apps because we, as developers, we do have the, the option to, to hide it. Oh, really? Uh, but Oh, interesting. I figure for starting out, we'll just, you know, follow Apple's guidelines and, and best practices for the time being. And I will say for people who are, you know, they're, they're change adverse. They don't like things moving around. I will say avoid this phone for a little while. You know, there's certainly people that I know in my life who really dislike it when things get moved, when, you know, whether it's a notification center being moved or control center being moved and things like that. And uh, if if you really, really are tied to that home button and where your notifications are and your control center is and things like that, that I would avoid this phone for a little while because it's, um, you know, it is a big change from that point of view, I think. And and for some people, that's going to that's certainly going to bother them. I think the the, the one thing that I had that's taken me a little while to get used to was uh, control center. I, I use control center a lot. You know, maybe that that's one of the reasons why the home swipe 
feature has been so easy for me to get used to. And it's because I was using control center all the time by swiping up from the bottom. But I, it, it did take a bit of getting used to of, okay, no, control center is up in the top right. And I can understand why a lot of people are having a difficult time reaching that. I, I don't think it's, even though it works for me and, and I don't have any problems using it, I can understand why a lot of people do. And I, I don't think that's going to last to iOS 12. Like I think it, in iOS 12, we're going to see a reimagining of uh, that gesture to, to something else because I think too many people are having a tough time with it and it, it's, it's a challenge for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as responsive as the, the interactions are, I, I would say I'm somewhat in alignment with some of what you, you mentioned earlier there about some people finding some things being longer and more tedious than, than they need to be. The control center is certainly the, the more egregious of, of the bunch for me. And I much prefer the way that it's done on the iPads. When I started running the, the betas on my iPads back in the summer, I was stoked for this, this interface of being able to swipe up from the bottom to get in the multitasking switcher. I can understand that. And, and I've, I guess it's been, was that in iOS 10? I don't remember if the control panel from the bottom was in iOS 10 or not. Are you talking about the so control center was always there, uh, but being the way that it changed for iOS 11 with the iPads, you would swipe up and you have the control center on the, the right-hand side and then your multitasking switcher on the left. And I would like to see them do something similar to this on the iPhone. I don't know if you've seen uh, at underscore inside on Twitter. Uh, he made a, a little concept video of how this could operate on the iPhone and that when you do that gesture to swipe up into the, the carousel to switch between apps to have it so that if you swipe over, like pull the right side over, so swiping left, uh, you'd have control center right there. I think that would be that'd be a great change for me because right now I, there are times where I'll I'll pull down control center using my nose because I, I just can't get my other hand free <laughs> and there's no way I'm going to to balance the phone and and be able to pull it down. Yeah, I I haven't seen that I haven't seen that video and um, but I'll, I'll that sounds like it would be a good thing. As I said, because this is a first generation where a significant change has been made to the interface i think they have to be a little less subtle they have to sort of beat you over the head with the idea of okay this is in a different place and this is very different than you know than that thing is and so i think the you know it's not very it's not very elegant right now but i think that's a necessity in a first generation change because it has to be really obvious to people that this thing is different than that thing. So this motion is different than that motion. It, there's, it's so difficult to know what works well and what doesn't in these circumstances. It, you know, you're, whenever you're developing anything like this, you, you become so close to it and you become so used to, you know, to doing something. I think it's, it's tough to know what the best ways of doing things. That with any design work, there are always compromises, and you have to basically release something like this out into the world to find out if the compromises you decided on are the ones that work best. And I think they got most of it right. You know, there there are always going to be little problems with this or things that don't work quite as well. But I think overall, the the interface on the ten and the way that the the interactions work, I think for the most part, they got it right. Uh, obviously, there'll be some tweaking. Maybe, you know, maybe even in iOS 11, who knows, but definitely in iOS 12, I can see there being big changes in the way that the interface works and, and improving, you know, sort of refining it a bit. 
So I, I'm looking forward to those. I think in the short term, I'm happy with what the way that it works, but certainly in the long term, it'll it will improve. Yeah. I mean, certainly swiping across the bottom to be able to switch back and forth between apps is a huge improvement over double clicking the the home button to oh, navigate absolutely. between apps. Or I mean, you could swipe from the very edge of the screen with a, a force touch uh, to bring that up as well. But very few people knew about that and. Yeah, I always found that force touch um, swipe over to be really awkward. Even though I could easily reach it, I I always found it awkward because that delay of getting the force touch to engage was always was always frustrating. Whereas the slide over from the bottom is so nice, and I really wish that my iPad could do that because I'm often swiping around on my iPad. You don't use the five finger swipe. Yeah, I do use the four finger swipe to to go back and forth. Right, and and that is that is handy. But there are times where it would be nice to just be able to. Uh, to be able to move over, especially when I've got the pencil in my hand, uh, I find it awkward to be to be drawing with the pencil, and then do the forefinger swipe over sometimes, uh, just because of the way that I'm holding the pencil. So there are a lot of times when it would be nice to to have just a you know a little bar at the bottom like that that I I could swipe over and and be able to get into another app. Yeah, yeah, I find that simple gesture has actually eliminated a large majority of the, the cases where I would have been engaging the, the multitasking switcher because often it, I'm just working between two or three different apps at once and it doesn't take much to swipe along the bottom to just flip between them. For the most part, the interface is much more fluid and dynamic. It's just the odd case where something's not quite as fluid as I would ideally like it to be and things that would have taken me one swipe before are now taking me two swipes or a swipe and a pause and, and that sort of thing. What do you think of the the attention awareness of your device? That's been interesting to get used to. There are parts of it that I absolutely love. Now, if you've got an iPhone 10 and you haven't done this yet, go into settings, face ID and passcode. There's a bunch of settings at the bottom that say allow access when locked. And I think by default, a lot of those are turned on. And what that means is that when the phone is locked, somebody can pick it up and see things like the recent notifications. They can get access to, you know, Siri and all of that stuff. With the attention aware built into it, you can turn all of those off. And it's nice because you'll see that there's a message sitting there waiting for you, but it doesn't show you the contents of the message until you look at the phone and Face ID engages. And so little features like that are so nice. It means that you can, you know, I can leave my phone. I actually have more things going to my notification screen now than I used to. Um, it used to be that I, I didn't have a lot going to my notification screen when it was locked just because I didn't want people being able to randomly see what was on my phone without being able to get it, you know, without a passcode. And now I can have those turned on. I can see that there's a, an email sitting there, an important email sitting there, or an iMessage, and you know, I don't have to worry about somebody just randomly looking at it and seeing the contents of a message without uh, without a passcode. So that little feature, go in there and turn all that stuff off, and it it makes it it makes it a little bit more secure, and it's it's really nice. The face ID and the the, the attention aware stuff, I've been loving that. It's uh it it's been it's been a really nice addition. It is a bit weird getting you know when you stop looking at your phone for a second and and the screen dims quite quickly that is a bit of an odd thing to get used to now what really excites me about the fact that devices are our attention aware now down to the point that it knows exactly where where your eyes are and where you're looking 
is seeing what they do with this down the road with with this device as well as and more particularly in the future when they introduce newer displays with even more features in them. Um, did you ever see? I think it was Joshua Topolsky from The Verge paid a visit to Microsoft's Edison Lab a couple of years back, probably more than five years ago now, and they had an older LCD panel there, but they had a system up on top of the screen that would would track your your gaze and exactly where your eyes were looking. And using something they called light guide technology, they could choose which eye to direct the screen at at any given time. So the the backlight could channel the the pixels on the screen to just a single line up and down uh, either side of your face. So they could say if you're doing the 120 hertz refresh rate on the screen, you you cut that in half. And then using this light guide technology, you beam different images to each eye. So as you're looking at the screen, what what you're perceiving is true three-dimensionality without the need of wearing any sort of 3D glasses or what have you. So I could see them doing a more rudimentary version of this without the light guide technology, just changing 3D objects on the screen based on where you're looking. So if you say move your head to the right or the left, or you change your gaze just slightly, the fact that the phone now knows where your your pupils are looking, uh, it can change the content of the screen based on that, which will bring a, a lot more depth to you know, 3D games or 3D interfaces, particularly for AR-based experiences. The the AR stuff is phenomenal too, and the just how thin the bezels are on this phone makes them even more rich. Uh, but I think they're going to be able to take that another step up by knowing exactly where your gaze is set. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with this. I mean, of course, there's a there's a dark side to the fact that the phone knows your attention too. So they're like, I don't want apps like Facebook and, and things like that being able to to know what you're up to. There's like any technology upsides and downsides, but I think the bounds of what's possible here uh, are quite exciting that sounds really cool and i and although for me personally i think that might be a bit of a bit challenging i i find uh sort of virtual 3d stuff challenging because my eyes don't focus together properly uh, my left eye is about 15 degrees off it, it doesn't quite focus on things properly with my right eye so i find a, a lot of that kind of technology tends to give me headaches because it just doesn't doesn't match up with what my eyes are really seeing uh, but I think where that I could see that going and being really useful is uh, sort of the next generation wearable where we've got, let's say, glasses. If the, you know, if the heads up display knows where it is that you're looking on the interface, it allows you to interact with that interface by using your eyes better. I, I know there are technologies out there right now for people with various disabilities, uh, you know, who have a difficult time controlling things with their hands. Uh, they can they can work with just their eyes and and even be able to type and things like that with their eyes because the the devices know where it is on the screen they're looking. So this I think definitely is the sort of the gateway to that technology becoming smaller and better, and you know something that you could actually build into let's say a pair of glasses with a heads up display and be able to navigate between different screens without needing to use your hands to adjust the interface. So I could see I could see it going down that road and and I, that I would love I would love to be able to have a a heads up display of what's you know what's going on whether it's directions on where I'm going or 
information overlays, you know, some sort of AR type thing where it's information overlay about person that you're meeting. Uh, I have a tough time remembering names and, uh, and occasionally where I've met people in the past. So, you know, it'd be nice to be able to, to bring up a, a heads up display saying, oh, hey, this is, you know, so-and-so that I've, you know, and, and uh, this is where I last met them or whatever. Same thing with, with information when you're walking around a foreign city you know, being able to say, oh, this is that building and this is the, you know, bit of the history. So I could see AR being effective in that kind of context. And if you've got the ability to see where people are looking in that interface, it would mean it's easy to control or easier to control than than trying to do something virtual with your hands, like a, like a minority report kind of thing. Like I think that kind of interface where you're using your hands in these big gestures on a virtual screen, I, I don't think that's practical. Like it, you know, our arms are not really designed for that. And, and it would be extremely uncomfortable to use it, whereas our eyes are already doing that kind of thing now. And, and I think it, that would make it much easier to control. Mm. Yeah, it's funny you should mention uh, interacting with technology using your, your eyes. Within AR, AR kit, uh, we now have access to face anchors as of iOS 11. And within that, there's a, a dictionary of, of something they call blend shape locations. Using that, I can know whether you're well, I basically I can know how wide open your eyes are or not. So rather than having to use a two finger pinched gesture to to zoom the screen, if you're just to squint a bit, it might automatically switch over to the, the telephoto lens to get you a, a closer view. So actually just seeing things respond to my own face on the screen based on what I've pulled uh, the phone I wanted to do is, is kinda creepy and, and empowering all at all at once. Yeah, it's kinda it's a whole new realm of exploration. I could see that being really confusing for mm-hmm. people right now, yes, exactly, because it's it's a it's an interface paradigm that they're just not used to using. But uh, you know, at the same time, if you go back and watch that original iPhone demo that Steve Jobs did, and you know how many like how many times did he slide to unlock that phone? And, and when you think about that today, if I had to slide to unlock my phone and type in a passcode today, I would throw the phone out. Uh, it would drive me crazy. And previous to that, of course, nobody had ever done that. So it, it took a while for people to get used to the idea of sliding to unlock your phone and then using Touch ID to unlock your phone and now using Face ID to unlock your phone. And and as you get used to those interfaces, they become part of the, you know, sort of the culture. And so I think as we get more and more used to this idea of devices that have facial data and accurate facial data, I think that you could you could do some interesting things with that. And in combination with eye tracking and stuff. Oh yeah, the possibilities for that are just amazing. I'm really looking forward to seeing what people do with them. Uh, Looking ahead even more beyond top notch, I think there is room as well for us to eventually see the device go completely edge to edge because there is technology, fringe technology out there already that would allow Apple to take everything that's in the sensor housing and distribute it throughout the display. Uh, so at MIT, I saw a few years ago that they have something called a, a bi-directional display. I think they were calling it BD displays for short. So your pixels are getting smaller and smaller. Uh, and what they've done is then take your camera sensors, which are also insanely small, and take all of the pixels, for lack of a better word, in the sensor and taking that and spreading that out over the face of a screen. So interspersed between all the subpixels, you have sensors, light sensors that all together work to serve as a, a camera sensor. And then let's say Apple does delve into doing light guide technology. They could have an infrared channel that would take care of the, this 
dot pattern that they're firing at your face right now to do the face ID. So as these pixels get smaller, it will open up room for them to be able to include these other technologies potentially. Uh, and there are OLED versions of this out there already, very rudimentary form where the it's an OLED screen that is also acting as a, a camera. I've heard already that Apple's investigating micro LED technology, which would be their, their next step beyond OLED. They're already looking at shrinking down these these pixels smaller and smaller. Uh, so I think in the, the not too, too distant future, uh, we will eventually see the, the notch disappear. And it'll kind of be like the jump from CMOS-based cameras to the, the CCD cameras that are, are now ubiquitous in, in laptops and mobile devices and just about any digital camera today on that level is, is a CCD-based camera, which we owe Apple a debt of gratitude for as well, because uh, they're the ones who really spearheaded that and were uh, among the first to bring it to market, if not the first. I don't think it's going to be too long before we start seeing some some significant changes in the screen technology and the camera technology and the sensor technology. I, I don't think it's that far away. And again, as they bring it into large, you know, larger number of devices, they can start to shrink it and it's, it's cost effective for them to shrink it. And then I think, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if 10 years from now, we're starting to look at replacing these, these, you know, pieces of glass that we carry around in our pocket with something that we wear as a pair of glasses or something like that, because I I don't think that I don't think that this form factor of having a a big piece of glass in your pocket is is much longer for this world. I think that you're you're going to be talking to your kids twenty years from now and you know saying, oh yeah, you know we used to carry around these these big pieces of glass in our pocket and and inter, you know interacted with them, and uh, and I think that they're going to find that that concept a little bit odd. Yeah, the screens essentially become irrelevant once you can start beaming light right at your retina. Yeah. Yeah. And I know with some of the, uh, so one of the things that, that didn't really get a lot of uh, airtime in the press recently was uh, Apple's been working with some of the uh, hearing aid technology to improve the uh, Bluetooth support in them. And so there is a new generation of cochlear implants that has full Bluetooth, low energy support in them. And so they can tie directly into your phone. You know, now you're getting all of the advantages of Bluetooth low energy in your cochlear implant. And you're now getting, in some cases, better audio service into your your brain than people who don't have problems with their ears. I can see this being a technology that 10 or 15 years from now, people who don't have problems with their hearing at all are starting to look at this and saying, hey, why can't I get a cochlear implant that has full connectivity to my phone and be able to get all my music and podcasts and phone calls and everything directly into my ears without needing, you know, AirPods or, or anything like that. So yeah, I, I think that's, you know, I think the idea of the, the cyborg isn't that far away from a, from a practical point of view, uh, just because these, these technologies are all out there and we're, they're starting to be produced in large enough numbers that it's it's cost effective to do it. Google Glass uses bone conductivity, doesn't it? I believe it did use bone conductivity, which isn't quite as good. I, so with a cochlear implant, you're you're actually tying into the in into the hearing mechanism, yeah. And so there there's certainly advantages to that. And and I'll be honest, once that technology is good enough, and you know it's it's a reliable surgery, I am going to be right there. 
I, I don't have a lot of problems with my hearing. I, I have some tinnitus, but my otherwise my, my hearing is excellent. And I will be the first to stand in line and say, hey, let's wire this thing into my head so that I don't have to have earphones with me. It'd be, uh, it'd be nice to be able to walk down the, down the road without needing uh, headphones to be able to listen to things. I wouldn't say I'd be the first in line, but I, I can certainly see it happening. I, I might be number 10 in line, but not, maybe not number one. I'm quite satisfied with just having these little earbuds, which are effectively little old school hearing aids. They're really handy. I mean, it's really changed the way that I interact with my device over the last few years. And I've heard the same from a lot of people with AirPods once they were announced. I know it changed the way that a lot of people interacted with their, their devices after that. Now, these these small AirBuds uh, uh, that you're using or, or earbuds that you're using, uh, how much passive noise canceling do they do? I would say none because I'm only using it in a single ear the way that I'm using it. So I'm still fully in tune with the world okay. also taking in auxiliary information. It's kind of like jacking into the matrix and having something downloaded into my brain while I <laughs> go about my daily life. Uh, okay. So one of the, I have a pair of AirPods that I, that I do like a lot and, and I do use on a regular basis, but my biggest complaint about them is that they have no passive noise canceling or almost effectively no, no, no passive noise canceling which means that I can't use them in the shop because I I have enough noisy things going on in the shop that if I want to listen to my AirPods, I'd have to crank the, the audio on them, which at that point you're then blasting sound into your ears at, at too high a volume. My biggest complaint about these kinds of things is the, the lack of passive noise cancelling. And the, the advantage that I see in doing something like a cochlear implant is that I can then use you know whatever hearing protection I want and block out the noises in the shop and then be able to still get good quality sound into my ears without needing to try and fit those things into, you know, inside of uh, ear defenders or something like that. Is there something like Dre's studio headphones or or Bose's Bluetooth headsets? Are are those just too big and and bulky for you to be able to use around the shop with their noise canceling? We'll, we'll talk about that. I think we're, we're going to do a, uh, a gift guide or a, a you know shop guide um, thing in the, at some point, and one of the things on my list is the Bose QC35s, the over-the-ear Bluetooth noise canceling headphones, and I do use those. Uh, I tend not to use the QC35s in the shop because they are relatively new, and I don't want to destroy them. Mm. Uh, but I do have an older generation pair that I use. Now, my biggest complaint there is that they uh, they have a wire coming out of them, which uh, which frustrates me a lot, and and isn't always safe in the shop either. Having a a wire dangling over a spinning lathe isn't uh, isn't a good idea. Yeah, absolutely not. Um, but I I do tend to use noise canceling headphones in the shop a lot, and that's that's how I've gotten around it. But my biggest complaint there is that most of them are either large, which you know again they're not they're not uncomfortable. Like I'm, that's what I'm using right now are my QC thirty fives while I'm while I'm recording this. And I, I find them comfortable. But if you're in the shop and it's hot and you're sweating, you don't necessarily want a full over-the-ear headphone on while you're doing that. Uh, so the, you know, I do have a pair of, of earbud noise-canceling headphones that I wear. But the problem with them is that they're wired. We're not quite there. Um, we're getting there, but we're, we're not quite there yet for people who do need to block out noise and, and uh, you know, whether you're on the bus or the, you know, you're in a loud cafe or something like that, you, you do need some passive noise canceling. Well, that serves as a nice teaser then. Perhaps we'll, we'll do a little a little gift guide for our next, our next episode, just things we find handy using around the shop. I've got a, 
a nice list of things that I I use on a daily basis that I I can't uh, I can't live without. Next uh, next episode maybe we'll talk about that a bit and and uh, some of the things that we need to that are absolutely mandatory in our shop life. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand.